Romans chapter 9, verses 10 to 13 is our passage for this morning. We've been preaching through the book of Romans, of course, for uh, a long time now. And uh, we have come to one of the deepest and profoundest sections of the book of Romans. And in our text this morning, we meet once again the pair of Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau were quite a pair. Uh, they're an interesting set of brothers. Right? They were wrestling each other in the womb, as we just read uh, earlier in our scripture reading from the book of Genesis. Esau was born first, and he was covered in hair, even at his birth. But years later, uh, Jacob uh, still described Esau as Harry and Jacob describes him, himself as a smooth man. So they were, though they were twins, uh, they were not identical twins. They were very different men. Uh, Jacob, uh, when he was born, he came out holding Esau's heel. And that's apparently where Jacob got his name. His name uh, means something like he grabs the heel or he cheats. And uh, Esau thought that Jacob deserved every bit of that name. Uh, because later, Jacob sort of tricked Esau out of his birthright, uh, demanded that he sell it to him in order to give him the stew that he had prepared when Esau was exhausted and famished. And then, of course, later, uh, Jacob tricked their father, Isaac, who had gone blind. Uh, Jacob dressed up like Esau and went into his father's room pretending to be Esau, bringing food as though he had hunted like Esau, and in that way he stole the blessing that normally would have gone to Esau, and instead it went to Jacob. Esau was his daddy's favorite, Jacob was his mother's favorite, Esau was an outdoorsman, Jacob appears to have been a quiet indoor type. But Jacob was the one, even though he was younger, who inherited the blessing and not Esau. Why? Why did it turn out that way? Well, the answer, according to Paul, is found not in what Jacob and Esau did, but in what God said about Jacob and Esau even before they were born. Genesis 25-23 says, The Lord said to her, that is to Rebekah, their mother, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, if we're familiar with how God works in the Bible, it's not at all surprising to us that the younger son is the one that gets the blessing. God often does that throughout Scripture. He turns our expectations upside down. You see that in the story of King David. Right? He was not the brother that anybody expected to be the king, but he was the one whom God had chosen. But it is significant that God told Rebekah this even before these boys were born, that it was the older who would serve the younger rather than the other way around. And Paul explains to us in the book of Romans why this is. So let me read for us verses 10 to 13 of Romans chapter 9. 
It says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, our passage starts there in verse 10 with this phrase, and not only so. So obviously we're in the middle of a significant thought that Paul is adding to. So it's helpful for us to remember what is the big idea that Paul is trying to communicate to us here. Remember his main point in Romans chapter 9 is not about the doctrine of election, although he's going to talk about that in these verses, and it's important. His main point is in verse 6, that it is not as though the word of God has failed. And the reason why Paul has to say that is because right on the heels of these tremendous promises that he's given us in Romans 8, he has reminded us in the first few verses of Romans 9 that many of the Jews did not receive or inherit the promises and the blessings that God had given them in the Old Testament. Many of the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and therefore they have not received the blessings and the promises that God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so that raises a question, poses a problem for Paul. If so many of the Jews have not received the promises that God made to their forefathers, how can we be so sure that God will keep these great promises in Romans chapter 8? How, will he, how can we be so sure that He will keep those promises for us if He does not appear to have kept the promises to the Jews? And so Paul says, let's be clear, God's promises have not failed. His words have not fallen. Okay, how, Paul, how can you say that when so many of the Jews don't believe? So here's, here's the principle that he is explaining to us. In verse, the middle of verse 6, he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So there's, there's ethnic Israel. There's everybody who's physically descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But not all of those people, Paul says, are Israel are the children of God, are the children who inherit the promises. And his first case in point was the story of Ishmael and Isaac. He reminds us that God said in Genesis uh, 21 that it was through Isaac that your offspring will be named, not through Ishmael. Ishmael, remember, was the offspring of Abraham and uh, Sarah's servant Hagar. And uh, when God's promise seemed to be taking a long time to come to pass, Sarah said, here, take my servant Hagar, I'll have a child by her. And God said, that's not the son I was talking about. That's not the son of the promise. Uh, Ishmael is not going to receive the promises that I gave to you. Those promises are going to come to Isaac. And so that's his first example. But somebody could say, okay... Paul, I get it that Isaac got the promises and not Ishmael, but that doesn't really prove your point about not all Israel being Israel. Because, I mean, just look at the story. 
Ishmael was not born from Abraham and Sarah. He was born from Abraham and Hagar. She was a slave. She was not his wife. Of course, that's not the son God was talking about. But that doesn't mean that not all the legitimate sons from Abraham are going, and Sarah are going to inherit the promises. And so that's why Paul says in verse 10, and not only so. So, okay, not only is this true of Isaac and Ishmael. Let me give you another example. Let me give you a clearer example. And he brings in the example of Esau and Jacob. Now, here's what's significant about the example of Esau and Jacob. He says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So, Ishmael and Isaac, they had the same father, but they had different mothers. Right? So that's a, an example of not all Israel being Israel, but it's maybe not the most specific and clearest example. So, now he says, alright, let me give you an example That's a little bit more particular, a little bit more specific. And I love the ESV, but the ESV is is not as clear in this verse as it should be. The NIV does a better job. Here's how the NIV translates this verse. The NIV says, Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Paul's words... uh, Emphasize not only that they had one father, but that they were conceived at the same time. That Ishmael and Isaac had the same father, but they had different mothers and obviously were conceived at different times. The point with Jacob and Esau is that they're twins. They were conceived at the same time, same mother, same father, same everything. Right? So they are as close to the same people, in one sense, as you can possibly be, even though we see by their lives that they ended up being very, very different. But they were twins, and so that makes them an excellent case study in how God is going to deal with the offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So here you have these twin brothers, and the main thing that Paul wants us to remember that God told Rebekah about them is in verse 12. The older will serve the younger. We've read that. Uh, a couple times already in Genesis uh, chapter 25. The older will serve the younger. Now, just like we said last time with God's statement to Isaac or to Abraham that through Isaac shall your offspring be named, when Paul quotes this verse in verse 12, the older will serve the younger, he expects us to be familiar with the whole story. Of Jacob and Esau. He doesn't, he's not just zeroing in on that one little phrase as though that's the only part that's important, but he zeroes in on that little phrase in order to call to mind the whole story of Jacob and Esau. So when God told her the older will serve the younger, the rest of what he said was there are two nations in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Now, Jacob later had his name changed by God to Israel. So the nation of Israel gets its name from Jacob. Esau became the father of a nation called Edom that you hear about occasionally in the Old Testament. The Edomites came from Esau. And 
Paul draws our attention to this in verse 13 when he says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That verse comes from Malachi chapter 1, and what's going on there is the nation of Israel is saying to God, We're not really convinced you love us. And God says, What do you mean you're not convinced that I love you? Look, look, look at Jacob, the nation of Israel, and look at Esau, the people of Edom. And, and he says, I, I've destroyed the land of the Edomites. I have judged them. They have fallen under my judgment. But you I have treated differently. I have blessed and I have nourished and I have restored. And, and what he's saying is, Jacob and Esau, as nations, as Israel and the Edomites, they, I have treated them differently. Because one is my chosen treasured possession and one is not. That's what he means when he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. So you've got two nations coming from these two brothers. One of them is blessed by God and one of them falls under the judgment of God. And when he, so when he says the older will serve the younger, that's not just sort of a statement of priority. That's also talking about who is going to receive the blessing that God gave to Abraham that was passed on to Isaac, and now it's going to get passed on to Jacob and not to Esau. Later, when Jacob goes into his father, Isaac, to steal the blessing from Esau while Esau is out hunting game, Jacob dresses up like Esau, puts on Esau's clothes, puts on some goat skin so that he feels hairy like Esau, brings the food into his father so that his father will bless him. Here's what Isaac said in that blessing. He said, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. That last part is part of the original promise to Abraham, right? So when Paul quotes this little statement about the older will serve the younger. It's not just saying, well, what's the hierarchy going to be? Who's going to be on top? No, it's about who's receiving the blessing of God. Who's receiving the promises to Abraham and Isaac? They're going to Jacob and not to Esau. Now, why is that important? And how does that happen? Well, Paul draws our attention in verse 11 to when this statement was made. When did God tell Rebekah the older will serve the younger? Was it after Esau had acted like a fool or Jacob had pulled some kind of stunt? No. Verse 11 says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, then he goes on to say, she was told. The older will serve the younger. So this statement was made to Rebecca before these boys were even born. Remember the, the boys were wrestling in her womb and she was basically saying, what is, what is going on? Why is it like this? Why am I experiencing this? So these boys have not been born yet. And in case we uh, don't draw the right conclusion from that on our own, Paul goes on and says, and had done nothing either good or bad. So these boys have not done anything foolish or anything noble yet. They've not been born. They haven't acted in any way, good or bad yet. And yet before they have done anything, either to deserve being blessed or deserve being left out of the blessing, 
Before any of those things have happened, she is already told the older one is going to serve the younger one. The younger one is going to receive the blessing and not the older one. Now, why did God do this? I mean, maybe he could have blessed them both if he wanted to, but he didn't. Why does he bless Jacob and not Esau? Paul says there in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, here's the reason, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So the reason why Jacob gets the blessing and not Esau is so that God's purpose of election and choosing where the line is going to go and who is going to receive the blessing, that that might continue. In other words, the doctrine of election is not new in the New Testament. It's not even new with Jacob and Esau. It's something that God has already been doing that he continues in the story of Jacob and Esau. So, for example, we could go back to Abraham. Why does God bless Abraham? Why does God speak to Abraham and say, I want you to go to a land uh, that I'm going to show you. I want you to leave your family, leave your kindred, and go to this new place, and there I'm going to bless you and make a great nation of you. Why does he do that? Was, was Abraham seeking God? No. No. Was Abraham somehow, like, was something special about Abraham? He did some special thing? No. God just chose Abraham. Right? Why Isaac and not Ishmael? Again, God said, this is the son that I promised you. This is the son that I've said, I will, through him, I'm going to count your offspring. Right? This is something God has been doing already in the Old Testament. I mean, he continues to do throughout the Old Testament. I mean, he continues to do uh, into the New Testament, or I should say has already done right before all of this. Because here's how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 1. This is true of all of us who are believers. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, even as He chose us in Him, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So, if you're a child of God, whether you're Isaac or Jacob, or whether you're you today, if you're a child of God, you're a child of God because God chose you. Because He set His love on you. Because He said, I want you to be mine. And I have decided that I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make you like my son. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to conform you to His image. Remember, back in chapter 8, we already encountered this doctrine uh, when Paul said that we were foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And, And we said the reason why God tells us those things is not so we'll get all wrapped up in all the, you know, philosophical discussions about how that can possibly work and how God can do this and we can do that and all the He tells us that God chose us and loved us and foreknew us and predestined us so that we will receive the comfort that comes from knowing that our salvation started with God and not with us. And if our salvation is rooted in God's purpose, God's plan, God's will, 
then we can be confident that God is going to carry that purpose through for us all the way to the end. And so Paul says here about Jacob and Esau, God was already doing this kind of thing with them. He chose Jacob so that his purpose of election might continue. Now, before I talk about why this is important for Paul's bigger point in Romans 9, why this is helpful for Paul's argument saying that the Word of God has not failed, let me just say a little bit about this whole uh, idea of the doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9. And that is, I want to acknowledge not all Christians interpret Romans chapter 9 the same way. Okay, some of you know Romans chapter 9, it can be a controversial chapter, there can be all kinds of discussions and debates and disagreements about what it means. And so, I want to say a few things about that. First of all, I want to say, while we're studying through Romans chapter 9, give yourself time to think and pray and process through this chapter. But this is a, this is a deep uh, weighty, serious, significant chapter of the Bible. And if you haven't ever really dug into this chapter before, um, it, it takes some time to get your head around the things that Paul is saying here. And so give yourself time to think about it and pray about it and ask the Lord to help you understand it, uh, to give you insight uh, into what Paul is saying here. Don't, don't try to figure it all out, you know, in one sermon or, you know, one sitting or anything like that. Second thing is, uh, don't reject the idea of election. If the way that I am explaining the doctrine of election seems wrong to you, or, or you've heard somebody say before that that's wrong and God can't work that way, don't conclude that you don't believe in the doctrine of election. You have to believe in the doctrine of election if you're a Christian. Because Paul just said, there's such a thing as election. Now, we might not all agree on how election works, and how God does it, and how best to explain it. But that doesn't mean some of us believe in election and some of us don't. Everybody who believes the Bible has to believe something about the doctrine of election, even if you just say, I don't know what I believe about it. But you, you can't say... I don't believe in it because then you're taking part of the Bible and saying, I reject that. And as Christians, that's not a choice that we have. So um, that's the second thing. The third thing is, don't fight about this. Some people fight about this stuff. It's just silly. Don't fight about it. Right? If you uh, disagree with the way that I'm explaining the doctrine of election, I don't want to fight with you about it. I I I'm okay with that. And I hope you'll be okay with that. Um, if you agree with me but disagree with somebody else, don't fight with them about it either, please. Right? It, let's, let's just all agree that we want to understand the Bible as best as we can, and we want to be faithful in the way we teach and explain the Bible. I'm going to do the best I can. If you disagree with how I'm interpreting it, I'm okay with that. We can be brothers and church members and friends and disagree on stuff like this. That's okay, right? We can even discuss it and debate it in a friendly manner if you want to, but let's not be mad about it, right? And let's, let's not, that, that's not healthy or helpful. Um, so let, let's not do that, all right? So if, if you're struggling with some of this right now, just be patient, pray, think, ask the Lord for help, 
And, uh, and, and he'll answer that prayer. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to come out on the same side of understanding it as I do. And, and I'm okay with that. And I hope you're okay with that. All right. So why does Paul bring this up, though? Why is it important for him to say that this was a matter of election, that this was part of God's election, uh, his plan to, to choose Jacob? Why does that help make his bigger point that God's word has not failed? I think he brings it up, and it helps his case because it reminds us that who is counted as an offspring of Abraham is ultimately up to God and not to us. That is, God who counts some as Abraham's offspring and not others. And if it's ultimately up to God who elects or chooses, right? then he can be sure he will keep his word by choosing some to be his people who will therefore believe. right? And that also means that those who do not believe are a part of God's plan and not somehow a failure on God's part. In other words, if God just sort of left it up to us and we saw people not believing and not receiving the Messiah and, and, and not receiving God's promises and, and fall away from God's plans, we might start to think, oh no, what if nobody, what if nobody believes the Messiah? What if nobody receives the promises? What, what, if, what, if, what if they all go the other way? But Paul says, that's not going to happen. Because God has been choosing His children all along. He did it with Isaac. He did it with Jacob and Esau. He did it with us. And when He sets His love on somebody, they don't get loose. They don't go astray. He preserves them. He keeps them. He grants them repentance and faith so they believe and they belong to Him. So God's Word is not going to fail because God is not going to let it fail because He always has His people. There's always some that He has chosen. Uh, Paul brings this up in chapter 11 when he refers back to the story of Elijah. When Elijah thought he was the only prophet left. I'm the only one and they're trying to kill me. And God says, no, i got 7,000 people you don't know about who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've got my people who are faithful to me. Now, let, let me say this too. If you're not a Christian, please don't let this confuse you. If you're not a Christian, you don't need to try to sort out whether God has chosen you or not. The only way to know whether or not you have been chosen by God in Christ is if you turn from your sin and you believe in Jesus. And if you've turned from your sin and believed in Jesus, guess what? You were chosen. And if you haven't turned from your sin and believed in Jesus, you still don't know. Because you might turn from your sin and trust in Christ today or tomorrow or next week or next year or whatever. Don't, let, don't get caught up in, is this true of me or is this not true of me? Just turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And then you'll know. So, Paul's point here is that what might look like failure on the surface in so many of the Jews rejecting the Messiah, is, is not failure on God's part. But underneath that apparent failure is a strong current of faithfulness. God has remained faithful to His promises and to His purposes from the beginning, and He will continue to do so. 
Though many have not believed, some have. And that is consistent with how God worked even among Abraham's immediate descendants. Giving the blessing to Isaac, but not to Ishmael. Giving the blessing to Jacob, but not to Esau. But knowing that does not make Paul indifferent to the many Jews who have not believed and been saved. Remember that this chapter begins with Paul in anguish over the Jews who have not believed in Jesus the Messiah and his wish that if possible, he could be cut off himself for their sake. So if we take Paul's teaching on election to mean that we should be indifferent to the lost people around us, clearly we have misunderstood him. The doctrine of election reminds us that God has a purpose and that he is is faithful to keep his promises. He has always been faithful. He is faithful today and he will be faithful to the end. Let's pray.